The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Historically speaking, most addiction was reserved for a small part of the population. I think what's so fascinating about this is that because it affects so many of us, you can't just go cold turkey on tech or screens. And that, in some ways, not being able to draw a bright line between using and not using makes it very difficult for us to monitor our usage and to use just the right amount. Hey, everybody. I'm Lori Rudiman. Welcome to a special summer edition of Punk Rock HR. All summer long, we'll be bringing you encore episodes of Punk Rock HR that I absolutely love. We've re-edited them, remixed them. We've made them a little fresh, but the conversation is really important. So if you've missed the episode the first time around or you heard it, but you want to hear a fresh take, sit back and enjoy the special summer encore edition of Punk Rock HR. How many of you have a job where you're stuck to your computer or your phone all day long? How many of you step into an elevator and instinctively look at your phone? And how many of you have ever been out at dinner and your child starts to cry and you hand them an iPad? Whether you've answered email on vacation or you've picked a fight with someone on Instagram because you just can't let a comment go, I'm here today to tell you that the technology all around us is irresistible and it's been designed that way to hook us. That's why I'm so pleased to have Professor Adam Alter on my show today. Adam Alter is an associate professor of marketing at New York University's Stern School of Business, and he's the author of the book Irresistible, The Rise of Addictive Technology and the Business of Keeping Us Hooked. If you've ever parked your car in the garage and then gone on Twitter and then 10 minutes later you were still in the garage and the light is off, or if you've ever been on Facebook and you refresh the feed over and over again to see the notifications, or if you ever wake up in the morning and think, what the hell am I doing? I need to throw my phone in the toilet. Well, you're not alone because that's me. And I feel like I am tech addicted. So if you've got any issues related to technology and you want to learn how to modify your behavior to reclaim your day, and more importantly, reclaim your evening so you can get some sleep, Sit tight, and I'll be right back with Professor Adam Alter. Hey, Adam, welcome to the show. Thanks, Laurie. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm a super big fan of a book that you've written, and that's why you're on the show today. The book is called Irresistible, The Rise of Addictive Technology and the Business of Keeping Us Hooked. Can you tell us a little bit about the book and what it's all about? Yeah, the book traces the rise of a kind of addiction that I think is relatively recent. It's known as a behavioral addiction. So traditionally, addictions involve the ingestion of substances like drugs or alcohol or nicotine, some sort of substance that influenced the way the chemistry of the brain worked and that led to addictive 
responses, people craving a particular substance that they return to over and again to their detriment. And from probably beginning with gambling in the 50s, 60s, and so on, as slot machines became more shrewdly designed, people developed some behavioral addictions as well. And this this book is about the rise of a particular set of kinds of behavioral addictions that reside on screens, tech-driven behavioral addictions. It's really about where that rise came from, what it is about these products on screens that make it so hard for us to resist them, and then what we should do about that problem. Well, I'm interested in why you wrote the book for a number of reasons. I feel so caught up in this world that I know a little bit about technology addiction. And even though I know about it, I can't seem to break my own patterns of behavior. So why did you write this book? Yeah, so that's largely what it was for me as well. I felt that I understood maybe the very surface level, the basic ideas associated with why I was spending so much time on screens. I think a lot of psychologists work this way. We sort of ask ourselves, what am I doing that's strange or that warrants a little bit of of extra thought? And for me, that was the amount of time I was spending doing certain things on screens. Um, And I wondered, my first question always is, am I the only one? And obviously, in this case, the answer was very, very clearly no. And then I wanted to understand better what the hooks were that that kept me embedded. And also, as you say, what do you do about this problem? I wanted to try to understand better what was going on so I could unpack it and perhaps reverse it to some extent. Well, that definitely makes sense. Maybe we could start at the beginning and we can talk about what exactly is behavioral addiction. What is it? Yeah, so it's a similar definition for me to substance addiction. It's basically something that you want to do a lot compulsively. So in the short term, it's something that you want to do that in the long term undermines your well-being in at least one respect. So it might be spending a colossal amount of time on email, despite the fact that then makes it very difficult for you to get work done, that it makes it difficult for you to have relationships with certain people because you're spending so much time in front of the screen. Maybe you have physiological consequences. It changes maybe the posture of your neck or the shape of your spine, things like that, all sorts of different consequences. And so a behavioral addiction is basically something that you do in the short term. You want to keep doing, you do it possibly, but in the long run, it's actually bad for you. With that definition, it makes me feel like at some point, 100% of humankind can be called a behavioral addict. Is that accurate? Like, what's the data behind that? Yeah, it's not quite 100, but it's very high. And so that's one really big departure from the traditional definition of addiction, which captures a very small part of the population. Not not always. I mean, smoking at its height captured more than the majority of adults. So, you know, there are some addictions that are quite mainstream, quite democratic in that sense. They, They cut across a lot of different segments. Historically speaking, most addiction was reserved for a small part of the population. I think what's so fascinating about this is that because it affects so many of us, you can't just go cold turkey on tech or screens. And that in some ways, not being able to draw a bright line between using and not using makes it very difficult for us to monitor our usage and to use just the right amount. Our thinking is aligned because my next question for you is really about how do you turn it off? Because many of us work in careers and organizations that demand us to be tethered to tech in some way. So if you have a true addiction, or even if you're just like addiction adjacent, like so many of us are, right? How do you manage in this world when all of us could really use a break from technology? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think there are interventions that lie at the governmental level. So governments introducing legislation, that's happening in Western Europe and East Asia, not so much in the United States. There are interventions at the workplace level. So there are workplaces that are becoming very conscious of this issue, and they are introducing interventions like concept known as Z-mail, where between, say, 6 p.m. and 9 a.m., no emails should be sent internally unless absolutely necessary. 
So having workplace policies that protect people, even vacation messages that say things like, thank you for this email, this person is on vacation, we've deleted the email, they will never receive it, therefore their inbox will not change while they're away on vacation, but you can send it on to this other person who's taking their place in the meantime. So those are at the very, very macro level, at the government policy level. There are some interventions at the workplace level, but given that not enough of that is happening, we have to, as individuals, own some part of this. We have our own responsibility to manage our own usage. And so there are a number of things to do. I think the smartest thing to do is really to recognize that there need to be barriers between the times when you're using screens and when you aren't. And those barriers don't exist for many people. If you ask American adults, how much of the day can you reach for your phone without needing to move your feet? In other words, your phone's in your pocket or it's on the table next to you or it's on the nightstand. About 75 to 80% of American adults say 24 hours a day, I can reach my phone without needing to move my feet. So the things that are around you, almost basically implanted into your body in some sense, those things are going to have an outsized effect on your psychological experience of the world. And if you don't want something to have that big an effect on how you live, you need to create spatial distance. So the smart thing to do, I think, is to say something like, at dinner time, no matter where I am, no matter whom I'm with, no matter what I'm doing, whether I'm alone at home, whether I'm at a restaurant with friends, we will all put our phones far away where they are beyond reach whether it's in a different room, in a bag, wherever it may be, in a coat pocket. So that changes the complexion of, of dinner time. You can go beyond that, say things like no phones in bedrooms, no phones in the hour and a half before bed since the light from the phone tends to disrupt sleep. One thing that I found very useful is on the weekend, I have two little kids and I, I love being able to take photos when they do things that are photo worthy, which means every five seconds. Right, of course. Yes. Of course. <laughs> but I don't want the phone to be intrusive. So unfortunately, with convergence, tech convergence, your phone is also your camera and your camera is your phone. So I try to put my phone on airplane mode for a pretty good chunk of the weekend. So it, I preserve its utilities, its use as a camera without it allowing it to intrude on my life. I think one useful test, a sort of litmus test is to say, would I allow some random human to follow me around and whenever they want it, at their own will to tap me on the shoulder and say, hey, check this thing out. You should see this thing. If the answer is no, that's a pretty good reason to turn off your notifications and to stop the device that you're holding nearby doing that. The best way is to keep it as far away from you as possible for as much of the day as possible. Well, your tips are excellent. And they remind me of something that's been important in my own career journey, which is this concept of self-leadership, right? Of really taking responsibility, of taking accountability for my personal growth, my development. Self-leadership is so hard, man. <laughs> it, <laughs> is, it is. Psychologists yeah. exist, <laughs> right? So are these solutions realistic for most of us? See, this is the issue. A lot of people think that it's either up to the tech companies to change what they do or it's up to the individuals. And I don't think it has to be zero-sum and I don't think, you know, it's not a dichotomy. You don't have to choose one. I think it makes sense for us as individuals to do everything we can. The world will obviously be only as friendly as, as it'll be towards our needs. And the current environment is not very friendly towards those needs. And so as a result, I think you're, you're asking the right question. Are we capable of this? I think we are. I think most of us can make very simple behavioral changes that introduce healthier, happier habits. And so we should do the things, for example, that I mentioned saying dinner time is by habit, it is a time without screens. I think most of us can achieve that. It might be difficult at first, but I think it's easy to do. Are we able to truly improve our lives by resisting screens? There are so many smart people behind the design of these devices, probably not in isolation. It's something worth striving for. I think one of the issues is that, you know, if you think about the analogy to, say, drug addiction, a lot of governments instinctively and as a sort of knee-jerk response punish the user of the drugs rather than the chemist who's making them or the distributor of the drugs or the dealer. And I think that's currently something a lot of governments are grappling with. So governments in East Asia, in, in parts of Western Europe are punishing users. So young users who play games for too long. Instead of saying we need to regulate the practice of creating games, of creating the products, 
at the level of the chemist or the distributor. They say things like, kids cannot be allowed to play games in public after 10 p.m. And I think it obviously, it's a Band-Aid solution. It does something, but it's misplaced. I think part of the issue is, as you say, we as individuals, it's difficult for us to constantly exert self-control. What we need is an environment that allows us and fosters that kind of well-being. And uh, we're not there at this stage. No, we're not. And it makes me think about the relationship between governments and the businesses that do business in those countries. And this whole notion of profit margins and revenue that's coming in in taxpayer dollars, right? So if you have an organization that's either creating these environments, creating these screens, creating the technology, creating this whole habitual cycle that we're all caught up in, or you have employers who don't benefit from us turning off our phones, we're kind of stuck because it's not like it's just government, as you said, and just employees. We've got to have employers in the mix too. What's your message to a responsible corporation that isn't evil and that's struggling with some of this, right? Because they certainly benefit in some ways from their employees always being on the phone, but they don't benefit, I think, from some of the negative behaviors and the outcomes of tech addiction. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. It totally makes sense. Not said that out loud before, but... I think it makes sense. No, it makes total sense. I get exactly what you're saying. I mean, the idea, you know, from the workplace perspective, I think one of the historic measures of efficiency is how many minutes does it take a person to reply to email, right? That seems like a very blunt, very strong way of conveying that your workers are always working, which is a a sort of thing you want from employees. You want them to be maybe not always working, but you want them to be efficient. So that's problematic, obviously. And and I think the way you convey this to businesses, there are a few things you can do. One thing is to basically convey the idea that people have finite resources and they become less efficient over time as those resources get tapped out. And by having them attached to a device 24 hours a day, they are never replenished. They never get those resources back. And so that you're always working with workers who are working at 50 or 60% of capacity or whatever metric you use. That's not ideal. No one wants that from their employees. They don't want their, their employees to be unhappy because burnout is a problem as well. But I think even more than that, If you think about what email does, we know that people in the workplace respond to the average email within six seconds. So most emails are responded to. That means they're opened and checked. And what that does is, again, it's this analogy of having someone who's tapping you on the shoulder. Imagine you're trying to get work done and you need to think carefully about something. And you're you're really like pouring your brain into this idea. And someone taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, check this out. And they do that as often as we get emails, which for a lot of people in the workplace is every couple minutes or maybe more. So what you're doing is you're basically working always at this incredibly shallow level. You never get deeply embedded in the work you're doing. You never produce your best work. In the same way that you know, if someone's trying to sleep and you want them to get into that deep kind of REM sleep, that really replenishing sleep, if you keep waking them up, they're always going to be at that surface level. They're not going to get a, a deep sense of rest and relaxation. And that's going to be true about how people work. So I think the case that you can make for relieving the burden for employees is incredibly strong. You just have to have an employer who's willing to listen. And when I've spoken to employers, and I've spoken to a few, almost all of them buy the idea immediately because it's it's hard to argue with. Yeah, it's hard to argue with, but it's also hard to implement because there are so many pressures in the work environment. And I wonder if things won't change until consumers demand change. And so do you see any movement in consumer communities to push technology companies or even employers to do this whole thing differently? Or is that still not kind of bubbling up? Yeah, I think it's absolutely happening. I mean, obviously, this it's going to be different by industry. Some industries where things move at a scale of like every few seconds, changes are happening in financial services industries. Sometimes things happen fast. You need people attached to their screens for a certain part of the day. This question about 
what consumers are demanding is a really interesting one. And I think we have become much savvier as consumers of tech. There is much more being written about these issues. When I first tried to sell the rights to my book, there were people who said, you know, this is not something anyone cares about. And this is only maybe five or six years ago. So I got some pushback. And that's surprising, but things have evolved really fast. You don't have to convince anyone that this is an issue anymore. You know, I used to spend the first 20 minutes of every talk saying, let me tell you why you should be concerned about this. If I did that in in a room, in an audience of reasonably savvy people, they'd laugh at me. So I think we're all on board with the idea that this is a concern. I think consumers are much more demanding than they used to be for the good. I think that's great. They're better educated. They realize this is a concern. There is so much written out there about this now that I do think they're demanding more. And I think employees are starting to demand more in the workplace too. And as a workplace, one of the ways you get leverage, you develop a competitive advantage, I think, is by saying, I care about your well-being in the long run. And there are lots of ways of demonstrating that, all sorts of workplace policies. But I think one of them is how you handle tech. Do you batch emails? Do you say, to allow you to do good work, I'm going to release emails from my server at 10 a.m., 1 p.m., and 4 p.m. And between those times, as soon as you've dealt with whatever came through that batch, I want you to do as much deep work as you can. And then you know, from 6 p.m. to 9 a.m., you won't get any emails from the workplace. I would choose that workplace over all other equal workplaces. And I think a lot of people feel the same way now. Absolutely. Earlier in the conversation, you made a comment that behavioral addiction is bigger than necessarily like the addictions we've had in the past, although you brought up smoking and that over half of the population in many countries have smoked, right? At different times in our history. And I see a lot of parallels with this world of technology we're in, but I also see some parallels and especially in reading your book that wealthy elitist individuals who know better don't give their kids technology. And when I think about the consumers and the way technology is being pushed out there, more and more, I see it being pushed downstream, downscale, right? So can you talk a little bit about class in the role of technology and how that's all playing out in 2019 and 2020? Yeah. So one of the big questions, obviously, is what happens to children when they spend from age, say, three months old on they spend eight hours a day in front of screens. How will that generation of kids look different from every generation that came before it? We don't really know the answer to that, partly because this is such a young problem, and partly because it's really just difficult to measure. You can't randomly assign kids into, you at birth will be assigned to use your phone zero hours a day, you will be assigned four hours, you 12 hours, and so on. So you can't do the, the perfect experiment, but there are hints that there are things we should be concerned about. And as you say, the parents who have the resources, the capacity, perhaps the education to do the most about this, they tend to be the people who are either wealthier, more upwardly mobile, better educated. And so you're finding that there's a class gap that's emerging, a socioeconomic class gap that's emerging in how we consume tech and the consequences for our kids. If you're a working class or a a poor American and you're trying to work out, what do I do with my kid? And it turns out there's this incredible babysitter, this device known as the iPad. I can give my kid this device for the next 15 years, 10 years, say, eight hours a day. It's the cheapest babysitter you've ever had. And it works really well. Kids will sit in front of that thing for eight hours a day. Question is, what will that generation of kids look like having done that? So I think you're absolutely right to point out this concern that there may be a tech class gap that's emerging. It's a new problem. We haven't really been able to to measure it much yet, but I know there are researchers who are concerned about it. Yeah, and I'm absolutely concerned about the impact to the workforce. And we have two competing messages going on around future workers. One is that everybody has to learn how to program or take STEM classes. And then there's another competing line of thought, which is future workers need to be critical thinkers and be rooted in the humanities and art and culture. And so I worry a little bit that we're creating like a bifurcated system of workers going forward, one that is trying to mimic a robot and compete with a robot, which they'll never do. And then others who are like, 
ultra human. And there's this, I don't know, there's some confusion around it and where that's going. And these are the things that keep me up at night because I worry as future HR professionals try to grapple with this, where are our talent pools going to come from? Yeah, I, I think that's that's a good question. I mean, I think one of the really good tests to ask yourself is the thing that I'm doing on the screen now, can that be done off a screen? Can it be done without a screen? So there are some schools, some of the Waldorf schools in, in the US in particular, that do not expose kids to any screens in, in the school environment until they're about 13 or 14 years old. And when they do, it's to learn to code. As you said, coding is an important skill today. These kids are only using screens for the thing that they need to be used for. Because all the other forms of education where kids are given iPads is a knee-jerk reaction, is a sort of ostentatious display of how many resources the school has. I think most of those uses are actually not wise. You can teach math without screens. You can teach reading. You can teach so many things without screens. And everything we know about cognitive psychology suggests that kids will probably learn better without them. You engage more, you encode more deeply material that you write by hand, that you think about more, that you have the ability to interact with in a way that's a little bit more direct and immediate than you have with screens. So I think most of the time, the screen is a detracting factor, except in the cases where it has to be used like coding, you couldn't do without a screen. I think there is a strong case to be made for using screens to learn to code. Yeah, that makes sense to me. As we start to wrap up the conversation, you've talked about some solutions where we can limit our exposure to tech. We can set some guidelines for ourselves. You talked about how this is realistic and how it is possible for human beings to do this. But, you know, I come from the world of human resources where people are terrible. (laughs) So before I tell somebody to limit themselves and their exposure to technology, are there other behavioral things that we should be teaching people to do that will then inform their ability to turn the tech off? I think one really useful thing to do is to try to understand what it is that tech is doing for you. I think for most of us, the psychological need that is met by tech is just boredom. Our boredom thresholds as a species have never been lower. Can you define that? What is a boredom threshold? Yeah, your boredom threshold is basically how much it takes, how much downtime it takes before you're truly, you feel bored, bored enough to find something to kind of soothe the boredom. And, you know, the idea that you get into an elevator for three seconds between two floors and every single person in the elevator, maybe through awkwardness, but to a large extent through boredom, will pull out a phone. It says something about the species that we don't like to grapple with downtime, with moments of idleness, even very brief moments of idleness that I think were a part of everyday life for many, many generations, maybe thousands of years. Humans dealt with that. They learned to grapple with it. And I think we need to be able to do that. I think a lot of creativity comes from those moments of downtime, those moments of boredom where you're, you're butting up against an idea. If you don't let yourself grapple with that moment, if you just pull out a, a screen that visits itself upon you, you don't have the kind of vista of space ahead of you that allows you to think of things maybe a little differently from how you did before or to test ideas, to, to really think. I think very few people will kind of zoom back and think about the world more broadly because everything's right in front of your face. The minute you may have done that, thought more abstractly and broadly, this happens and you pull this out, you pull out your device and you're gone, you're disengaged and you can't do that. So we've got boredom. I would also think that there's a component of loneliness in our society that's driving this as well. Can you speak to that? Yes, absolutely. So boredom is the first of those motives. I think different people have different constellations of motives that drive this, but loneliness is a huge one. The sense that we're very separate from other people and separated from them, that again will vary by person. Anxiety is a big one. Depression will be part of this. There's this really interesting work suggesting that what a pacifier does for a toddler or an infant is what the phone does for an adult. That just as comfort is found in a binky or a blanket or whatever it may be, some sort of comfort object, for most adults now and teens as well and even kids, 
phones serve that need. They are in moments of anxiety or discomfort, the thing you turn to, and they do bring you a measure of, I guess they soothe you. And so I think once you understand the psychological motive that's met by these devices, you then are better equipped to work ways around it. You know, if, if it's about boredom for you, you've got to find a way of dealing with the boredom that doesn't involve the phone. If it's about loneliness, cultivate connection to the extent you can. I know that's pretty flipped to say that it's connection is hard. And a lot of people think technology makes connection easier. I mean, there's that kind of chicken and an egg thing going on right now, right? We feel like we can connect with people all over the world through that phone. And yet the phone can be so isolating. Yeah. It's such thin connection. It's like gruel. I mean, there's just no real meat to it. There's no substance to it. So I think you're right. There is that illusion of connection that comes from the phone. But once you understand the motive, I think you're in a better position to work out how to deal with it without using a phone. And that's not something many people do. I think it's a good first step. Well, I have really enjoyed the conversation. I really enjoyed the book, Irresistible, The Rise of Addictive Technology and the Business of Keeping Us Hooked. Before I let you go, you've also written another book that's come highly recommended to me and I haven't read it yet, but it's called Drunk Tank Pink. Do I have that right? That is right. Tell me a little bit about (laughs) that book. Drunk Tank Pink, it was the first book I wrote. I wrote it a, a number of years ago and it's basically about all the features in the world around us that shape how we think, feel and behave at home, in the workplace, when we're out and about in town, wherever we are. It's a it's sort of attempt to group together all the research I did for the first maybe 10 or 15 years of my career. And it basically makes the case that we have this sense that we operate with a huge degree of free will, that we know exactly what we're doing and why. And actually, there are a lot of these very subtle forces that shift us constantly. And I wanted to try to unpack that for people who maybe didn't realize how much that was happening. Obviously, Irresistible is the the sequel to that in that it looks at one very big, powerful force. But that first book was a compendium of forces from the colors we paint the walls around us to the weather conditions to the names we give our kids and our businesses, things like that. It's a different book, but it's, uh, I guess, similar ideas, some similar ideas. I mean, exploring the world of control and self-limiting behaviors, right? And all of exactly. that is very interesting. Thank you so much for your time today. If people wanted to learn more to find you on the internet to connect, how do you recommend that they go about doing that? Probably not surprised to hear I'm not on social media much. I do tweet occasionally. My Twitter handle is Adam Lee Alter, A-D-A-M-L-E-E-A-L-T-E-R. The thing about academics is you can find us everywhere. Everything's public. So if you search for my name, you'll find my homepage, my academic homepage, my personal homepage. It's all right there. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Punk Rock HR. Whether you're new to it or you heard it before, everything you need is always in the show notes and you can find them at laurierudeman.com forward slash punk rock HR. Now, I hope you're having a great summer and it was an honor to spend some time with you today. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time on Punk Rock HR. <laughs>